Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. Before we get started, we're heading for our fifth anniversary, and to celebrate, we wanted to put together a special nerdiest yet episode answering your deepest, darkest questions about China. Think of us as your China politics agony uncle and aunt. Have you got a burning desire to find out why your agricultural machinery bureau is half a rank lower than your agricultural extension bureau? Are you perhaps curious why traditional Chinese medicine is affecting donkey populations in Africa? If you do. Please send us your questions, thoughts, or contribution to Louisa and I at our Facebook page or on Twitter. This is your chance, listeners, to test us out, and of course, our long-suffering researchers Julia Bergen and Xu Chong. Please drop us a line. And just to add in,、um, if you've heard something on our shows in the past and you've had a similar experience or you have something to add, please let us know about that as well.、Um, I'm going to be offering a special prize. For the best question or the best comment, a book by one of our guests today, Barbara Demick's、uh, "Eat the Buddha." I have three copies, so anyone who asks a really good question, I'll send a copy your your way. So please send us your thoughts or questions. And of course, you get a little red podcast mug. So this month's episode was born out of a tweet that I noticed a while back. The tweet showed two satellite photos taken in Tibet's Nagchu region, about a kilometer from a detention facility. The first picture shows how a Tibetan mantra had originally been written in Tibetan script on the hillside, the famous Om Mani Padme Hum in white. The second picture shows how that mantra has been bulldozed and replaced with a five-star Chinese flag and the words "Long live the motherland" in Chinese. We wanted to talk about what's been happening in Tibet, and we're joined by an all-star cast. Barbara Demick is a journalist of almost impossible to report places. After writing a book about North Korea, she's recently published "Eat the Buddha: Life and Death in a Tibetan Town" about Naba, the town which has the most Tibetan self-immolations in the eastern region of Amdo. Benno Weiner is an associate professor of history at Carnegie Mellon University. He's just published "The Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan Frontier," which is also about Amdo. And last, but by no means least, Tenzin Dorji, or Tendor, is a senior researcher and activist at the Tibet Action Institute. He's also doing a PhD at Columbia University.、Um, Tendor, let's start with you. The bulldozing and replacement of that mantra—how symbolic is that of what's happening in Tibet now? The imagery that you just described,、uh, the bulldozing of the mantra on the hillside—I think that's really a symbolic representation of. The kind of assault, almost a climax of the assault, that the Chinese government has been waging on the Tibetan people, and the Tibetan culture, and the Tibetan homeland, for more than half a century, and、uh, I think the Tibetan people have basically have to tolerate and have to suffer under this basically colonial occupation for. A really long time, and、uh, one of the really remarkable, amazing things about the what 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 is often known as a conflict, the Sino-Tibetan conflict, really brutal kind of occupation of the Tibetan plateau and the Tibetan nation. I think after more than seventy years of this going on, the Tibetan people really still haven't given up the struggle for self-determination, and the people 
uh, are you know resisting in all ways big and small in order to preserve and promote their own language culture and religion and the attack right now what we are seeing in in these recent last couple of years is sort of a final solution approach from the Chinese government. So what we have been noticing in many areas in terms of language, for example, the kind of campaign which the Chinese government has called a bilingual <laughs> education campaign, which is really a terrible, it's a euphemism for what is actually an eradication, a campaign aimed at eradicating the Tibetan language by really cutting off people from their mother tongue. Um, it has been intensifying in the last few years. The campaign to relocate the nomads from their ancestral grasslands by using highly coercive methods um, and, and also tactics that are kind of borderline between coercion and persuasion or co-optation, um, but basically attacking the nomadic way of life, which is critical not only to the preservation of Tibetan culture, but also to the preservation of the ecological system on the plateau. So in all of these areas, uh, what we have been seeing, and then in the, in the monastery, the religious way of life or the, you know, the the Chinese government's penetration of the monastery, which hasn't really been the case for quite a long time. Uh, the monasteries were, for a number of years, even during the height of the brutalities, the monasteries were able to preserve some kind of a parallel institution or a parallel sense of a space of uh, freedom. And even that uh, space is now gone because the state, the Chinese state, has entered and penetrated the monastic system and the monastic space. So all around what we're seeing is kind of a final solution assault on Tibetan culture, and that's really captured well in the image you described. A quick question for Benno related to that. I mean, um, how would you see from an academic perspective um, the word occupation? Does that fit with your research into what has happened since 1949? Um, in a in a word, yes, I, I, and I think Tender was right that we're seeing a particularly aggressive moment, a pr particularly uh, assimilationist moment, one that's really marked by a, a very aggressive ethno nationalism. The Communist Party since 1949 has really zigzagged between more nakedly assimilationist periods and more relatively pluralistic periods. Uh, the 1950s, uh, the decade after the founding of the People's Republic of China, was a particularly uh, you know, again, I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to sugarcoat uh, it. But uh, a, a moment when the party was really trying to come to terms with its so-called ethnic minority peoples, peoples in the ethnocultural borderlands, trying to, I would argue, to build a nation rather than just to occupy. They were trying to transform people. They were trying to uh, build something that was, at least on the surface, much more pluralistic and much more based on sort of a, a somewhat of a, of a give and take. To be fair, Tibetans and others weren't given a choice, so it was never a, a true uh, sort of partnership by any stretch of the imagination. But there was a realization in the early days of the People's Republic of China that you can't, to, to put it bluntly, ethnocultural violence is not an effective way of nation building. And then they repeatedly have forgotten that. Uh, you know, the, in the late 1950s, and then there's a, a short period of, of a sort of um, a moderation in the early 60s, then the Cultural Revolution comes along, then you have a period of moderation in the 1980s, and then since the 1990s, building up to today, you see 
sort of a steady march of, of a much more aggressive policy in Tibet, but also in other ethnocultural border regions as, as well. At one point, the party realized or understood this wasn't going to work if their goal was to build something like they claim it's, it is, which is a multicultural state. What we see today is something different. One thing that really jumped out from both your research, Benno, and Barbara's writing is this idea of different different ways of viewing the calendar. I think a lot of us are so familiar with the sort of real Chinese his party milestones, those historical moments, 1949, 1958, 1966, 1978, 1989. And the idea that Tibetans have a, a different kind of chronology in their heads with which to view the world, I think, was something that was so interesting. Barbara, you've written about Ngabge 58 and the place this plays in the Tibetan psyche. Can you can you tell us a bit more about that? Um, yes, you know, both Benno and I wrote books that um, are set in Amdo, the sort of the eastern, eastern edge of Tibet, and more than more than half of Tibetans live outside of the Tibet Autonomous Region, what um, the Chinese call Tibet. So, you know, when I meet Tibetans in New York, which I do often, and they say I'm from Tibet, they're not from, you know, what China considers Tibet. But this this eastern part of Tibet, Amdo and Kham, is like just as Tibetan. And their history is somewhat different. Um, you know, basically to them, the occupation started in 58. I mean, it had started before, but 58 was this, you know, very brutal year when it seemed like the Chinese Communist Party got rid of its good intent, whatever good intentions it had and the gradualism and they just went, you know, slammed into confiscating the animals, confiscating the land, you know, this forced collectivization and it was a disaster. So yes, they, they refer to it as 58 and their uh, Tibetan songs and poetry just about 58, the same way we say 911. It doesn't mean it doesn't really need more explanation because it was such a disaster. Or, that, or they call it the Duloc, you know, when the, the, basically the sky fell to earth. That was just, you know, this great disaster. I, I found it somewhat confusing when I was reporting in this part of Tibet because people would refer to the Cultural Revolution and they actually meant 58. It's a somewhat different timeline, but, you know, just, you know, in, in very brief, it was what happened in 58 in the eastern part of Tibet in Amdo and Kham that partially led to the uprising in 59 that led to the flight of the Dalai Lama from Tibet because the refugees fled west for their, for their lives. And it's where everything fell apart. Tendor, I mean, one, the one big question, I guess, that drew us to this episode in the first place was the comparison, implicit comparison between what's happening in Xinjiang now and what's happening uh, in Tibet. I think you've argued that the controls in Tibet are far more sophisticated than those in Xinjiang when it comes to the restriction of religious freedom, um, speech, movement and assembly. I mean, in what way could this situation in Tibet be, be worse than what we're seeing in Xinjiang? I think there are two key differences. And... Uh... One is definitely the Islamophobic factor or the war on terror factor uh, that's on the Uyghur side, which is you know turning into 
unintended kind of collateral victims of the war on terror, uh, which China was able to seized as an opportunity to exploit it as an opportunity to really go all in on the crackdown against the Uyghur people, right? Uh, then the other factor that I think is actually pretty important is the Dalai Lama factor or the Tibetan movement factor. I think that Tibetan people and the Tibetan cause has been somewhat comparatively lucky or fortunate in terms of having had a international movement with not just a momentary kind of attention, but actually a m movement that actually has had very strong institutional structures. Like in the infrastructure of the movement is actually quite amazing, starting from the 1980s when the Tibetan leadership in exile, including His Holiness and the Tibetan government, began to put a lot of effort into building an international movement that would have, you know, recruit people, recruit new people, turn them into activists, or recruit sympathetic people who could actually do the work for the Tibetan cause. And uh, I remember in my own experience, even just 10 years ago, I would say there were at least 300 NGOs and Tibet support groups located all over the world. Um, and the Uyghurs don't have something similar, have not had something similar. And and now the situation is very different. And in a way, now the Uyghur issue is actually very well known around the world, but for a reason that's extremely tragic, you know, a very, very tragic uh, circumstance. It's been always very difficult to get attention for stories about the Uyghurs, you know, up to the last few years when, as Tendor said, we had these tragic circumstances. I was just going to say when I was proposing my book about Tibet, I was originally going to profile sort of the two most sensitive places I'd been in China, uh, which were Noa, the Tibetan capital of self-immolation, and Kashgar. And I, I could not interest a publisher in the Uyghurs, and they were like, Uyghurs, how do you spell that? How do you pronounce it? And it's just, you know, now, yes, there's attention, but it has been such a struggle for years. The repression in Tibet can actually be much more sophisticated because it has to be more sophisticated. If the Chinese government had done exactly what it's doing in Xinjiang right now in Tibet, that would have come to the attention of the global community much sooner. It would have been much, much harder to justify. Um, but at the same time, I think, in a way, the kind of uh, genocidal policies that is really wrecking the Uyghur community in Xinjiang right now, that those some of those policies actually have been visited on the Tibetan people back in the 60s and 70s as well. And I uh, remember, you know, saying to uh, potential supporters and politicians sometimes when they ask is what is happening in Xinjiang, can that be called labeled a genocide or how close is it to a genocide, you know? Um, but basically one of the reasons why China is able to do this in Xinjiang right now partly is also a result of, you know, having done something similar in Tibet a long time ago. So when a regime is unchecked in its uh, behavior, I think that behavior tends to repeat itself in other areas. So I guess one of the similarities, again, is, is one of personnel, the party secretary, Chen Trenggo, who's known to be a real strong man, moved from Tibet to Xinjiang. And 
I mean, while his term in Tibet, I think, was really characterized by almost a military a securitization, almost a militarization of the Tibetan plateau. Um, Barbara, in your book, there's this sort of astonishing um, statistic that by one count, there were 50,000 security personnel stationed in Ngawa, which is uh, a county which has a population of 73,000 people. How is that reflected in daily life? Well, it's funny. The first time I went into Ngawa was 2013, and I was in the back of a taxi and we sort of drove in at dusk and it, it seemed like almost every vehicle on the road was some kind of police car, uh, APC, um, various armored vehicles with cameras and it was fire extinguishers. That was the, the self-immolations that had already begun. And it was, you know, it was really terrifying. I mean, it was like, um, riding through Baghdad, you know, during the war, uh, just, you know, surrounded by it, by this blanket security. And um, in fact, I tried to, I was going to take out my phone to take a few pictures from the taxi and my hand was shaking so much I couldn't do it. Um, but it just, you know, especially in the center of town was just completely stifling. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think I've seen anything like that um, really anywhere, you know, maybe Tiananmen Square in Beijing had a lot of security, but just this, this blanket presence. And more recent times that I've been there, it hasn't been as obtrusive or as obvious, but, you know, as again, it's become more sophisticated. You have the closed circuit television cameras, these apps that everybody has to um, install on their phones that keep track of your movement and your music and who you're chatting with. Um, they've, um, you know, what I've heard from Tibetans is that since the uh, uh, COVID pandemic started, all over China, people have gotten these, these apps that show where you've been. But the apps that show where you've been, well, they show where you've been and they can show who you're talking to and people get in tremendous trouble for, you know, something they they text, especially on WeChat. So it's become, you know, in a way more insidious, but less visible. Mm. I mean, Barbara, I almost hesitate to ask this question, but your, your assignment before Nawa was North Korea. Uh, how did the two compare? <laughs> there's, there, there, there's, you know, quite a bit in common. And I would say, some, not all of the Tibetans that I met, you know, had almost that same level of fear that I saw among North Koreans, where it wasn't even what they said, just the, just, you know, being seen with you or talking to you was uh, so terrifying and could get them, um, you know, in such trouble. And that was especially true, both in North Korea and Tibet with, you know, people who were more um, in the upper rungs of society, people who were, you know, oddly in the party, some Tibetan academics who I met at conferences, um, if I would ring them on the phone afterwards, they, they just, um, you know, they'd just hang up. They, they couldn't even be civil. I, I see, sorry, this is the podcast, but I see Benno nodding at me. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I was I spent a lot of time in in Omdo in in around two thousand eight and two thousand nine. So that's the the year that the uprising happened across the Tibetan plateau, and I had the, you know the same experiences, of course. Um, and this is before the the security really had cracked down in these areas. But there's a tremendous amount of uh, of fear. Uh, there's a, there was a there was a real change in the way that the streets of Xining, the capital of, of Qinghai Province, felt. Um, Tibetan friends of mine and Chinese friends of mine would tell me that they no longer associated with one another quite often. Um, and people that I had, you know, relatively good friendships with before, um, you know, they, they just, they, they wouldn't talk to me. And I understood why. Um, um, you know, they, certainly not on the phone, but sometimes even in public. So, and I guess Eastern Tibet had long been thought of as being more um, open than Central Tibet, than Lhasa. You could never do this type of work that I did in, in, in Lhasa, that I did in, in Amdo. Um, but around 2008, 2009, that started to change. And you really do see this securitization that Barbara was talking about and, and these uh, increasingly sophisticated ways of, of keeping track of, of people and, you know, what they do and what they say. So, Benno, I mean, I'm really glad Tendor raised the comparison between Xinjiang now and Tibet in the 50s uh, and 60s because that's the focus of your work. And you argue that um, despite the relaxation and tightening of controls in Tibet, all of these efforts to, to bring Tibet into the Chinese nation have failed because there's such a scar, a history or a historical memory of violence. I mean, can you exp explain to us maybe how that uh, developed and what impacts it has today? The first thing we have to understand is that, despite what the Communist Party says, is that Tibet was never part of China in the sense that they claim it was. Tibet was never part of the Chinese nation state until after 1949. You know, what it was, was it was part of an empire under the, under the Manchus, under the Qing, as was China, as was Xinjiang. Tibet and Xinjiang both came into the Qing Empire in the essentially the 18th century. Um, and they were uh, part of this very, this vast imperial formation. And that's just a very different thing than what you see uh, these state building and nation building processes in the 20th century in China, but all around the world when empires are collapsing and nation states are, are taking their place. And the almost unique thing about China is that when the empire collapsed, although it took 50 years, essentially the nation state took over the same boundaries and the same demographics as the old empire. But empires are very different than, than nations. Empires, and I don't want to, of course, give a free pass to empires. They've, of course, committed lots of violence as well over, over history. But they tend not to uh, be as transformative. They tend not to make the same sort of demands on people that nation states do. And so, in a sense, Tibet was okay being part of a Manchu empire. But there were, there were new expectations of being part of the Chinese nation state, or the, in this case, the socialist nation state um, in particular. Um, to a degree, as I mentioned before, the Communist Party understood this. They tried to implement relatively moderate policies called the United Front. Uh, these were attempts to persuade Tibetans, and not just Tibetans, Uyghurs and others as well, that they should be part of China, that they wanted to be part of China, that they had a stake in China, um, that it was a multinational nation made up of many different ethnicities based on equality and, and all these types of things. And, and, and um and whether or not that could have worked is is almost a moot point um, because that was shut off by the violence that's committed against Tibetan communities in the mid and late 1950s. So in Amdo 1958, as Barbara was talking about, um, and the violence was was 
overwhelming. Uh, maybe 10 to 15 percent of the Tibetan population was imprisoned and or, or killed. Most of the elites of the old society who still had been in partnership with the party up to that point were thrown in jail, tortured, and many places killed. You know, monasteries were destroyed. Um, you know, religion was proscribed. And even if it was sort of brought back for a short period after and then again prescribed during the Cultural Revolution, these are not things that can just be easily sort of smoothed over because Tibet wasn't part of the Chinese nation state before this. So this goes back to the question about timing sort of, or, or, or periodization that, that, that was brought up before. When the Cultural Revolution ends in China and the Deng Xiaoping regime comes into power, they have a certain narrative that they use to try to explain to the Chinese about what happened in the past and how it's going to be different in the future and how the Cultural Revolution was a, a big mistake. But among Tibetans, this, this argument doesn't really make sense because they were never part of that nation in the first place. You didn't have to explain to Chinese people why they should be, part, why they should be Chinese. You might have to explain to them why the Communist Party should be in power. You might have to legitimize that, but not the idea of the nation itself. But for Tibetans and for others who are victims of, of just tremendous levels of state violence, that argument doesn't make sense. And most of the people that were arrested for participation in the rebellion were exonerated in the 1980s, just like most people that participated in the Cultural Revolution. The problem is, is that exonerating people for participating in what they believe was a righteous rebellion doesn't explain to them why they should be part of China. And they're still having difficulties uh, making an argument to Tibetans and Uyghurs what stake they have, again, in this nation state. And when you combine that with the ongoing violence that, that Tendor and others were talking about to this day, uh, it's just a very hard sell. Barbara, you've also written about the kind of how that generational nature of violence sort of unfolds on the ground, that, you know, some of the people, I think it's more than 150 people who have self-immolated, are actually uh, grandchildren of those who participated in the... 1950s uprisings, how were you able to sort of tease out those connections? There, there's something that people talk about um, now, they refer to, you know, epigenetic trauma, like this trauma that's inherited by populations. They talk a lot about it in the civil rights movement in the U.S. But, you know, what happened in 58 and onward, as, as Ben was saying, it was just, you know, horrific, horrific. People were you know, gunned down like they were. One man said we were we were chased and shot as though we were wolves. There were tremendous massacres in this area, and the uh, the Chinese government has never apologized for it, except for like one brief moment in 1980 when Hu Yabang, the most liberal leader of China, issued sort of a, an apology, and. You know, there's various estimates, but at least 300,000 Tibetans lost their lives in that period. And, you know, I don't want to make equivalencies here, you know, but nobody talks about what happened to the Tibetans. Nobody has apologized. And so there's never been a reckoning that would allow, allow people to go forward. And I think that you know, there were the grandparents who lived through it and survived it. And then there were the parents' generation who, I think like many Chinese in the 80s and 90s, wanted to really forget. They didn't want to talk about that stuff. They didn't want their kids to be angry. So it was all repressed. And 
the younger generation, you know, became more curious and they had access to the internet and to Weibo and they learned what happened. They heard firsthand stories, sometimes from their grandparents. You know, that, that trauma is somehow still in the Tibetan population. So when I started researching the people who self-immolated in Noah, many of whom were from the same little town, actually, Merima, which is a, a cluster of villages up to the east of Noah, you know, many, many of them had um, grandparents who had been resistance fighters against the Chinese. And, um, you know, it seemed to like run in families and where they were you know, rediscovering their roots. I've got a question for, for Tendor. Um, I mean, one of the biggest changes that we've seen in recent years, and, and this is something that's shared with Mongolians, um, has been the emphasis on um, shutting down the teaching of Tibetan language, particularly in, in schools. Um, um, you've spoken about boarding kindergartens for Tibetans that sound quite a lot like residential schools that have been set up for Uyghurs. Can you tell us when this policy started or when things changed um, and how widespread this is? So the time that I first heard about this from my friends, this was uh, soon after 2010 or 11, I think, they started telling me what they have been going through, what their families in Tibet have been going through. And some of their family who was in Lhasa, their children started to um, be enrolled in this kindergarten. And basically it was a kind of a, I think residential school is actually a very apt term for describing some of these things. And it seems to differ a little bit between what happens in Lhasa or in the Tibet Autonomous Region versus what hap- what's been happening in other counties outside of the Autonomous Region. And that's one interesting aspect of the Chinese policies in Tibet. It seems the policies are never exactly the same all across Tibet. They vary between county to county, prefecture to prefecture, and it can be accidental, but sometimes I suspect it may be intentional uh, because when you do this kind of rotating style of repression, it makes it hard for the people to organize something together because not everybody is being uh, pressed at the same time. It goes up and down for each of these villages. What happens in that village happens next year in our village, right? And uh, in Lhasa, what was happening was uh, my, my friend's family, uh, their children now ended up having to be in the kindergarten for five to six days a week. And then only over the weekend for one day or one and a half days, they ha- they are able to come back to the family. And a couple of months into this new uh, practice, the children lost their ability to speak to their grandparents. And they were really... Uh, horrified to go through this experience because all of a sudden the children would come back from kindergarten and start speaking in Chinese and they cannot speak in Tibetan. The grandparents can only speak in Tibetan. They do not speak Chinese. The parents are in the middle who can speak Tibetan and Chinese both. So basically in one family what we started to observe was this kind of a loss of language over the course of two generations, right? So you make one transition and then make another transition. And basically you have cut off the means of communication between the children and their grandparents. And what Barbara was just explaining actually brings home to me even the more uh, significant aspect of what's happening here. Because 
a lot of times tradition is passed down generationally, not from parents to children, but from grandparents to children, you know, uh, grandparents to grandchildren. And uh, in, in, in many traditional societies, including in Tibet or, of course, in Xinjiang or Mongolia, uh, but across a great deal of Asia, and now when you attack that link of communication between the grandparents and grandchildren, you are really within one generation wiping out all of that stuff. And to me, that seems like a very sinister aspect of what the Chinese government is doing right now in terms of language, uh, both in Tibet as well as in Mongolia. What I've seen is that there's less and less available in the Tibetan language. I was in Lhasa um, a couple of years ago, and it, it seemed like there was just like nothing in Tibetan. You know, a lot of the street signs were in Chinese or English. The um, the menu at the Burger King at the Lhasa airport was in Chinese and English. The the Tibet Airlines magazine had like. Tibetan calligraphy on the cover, but it was in English and Chinese. And, you know, even, you know, watching the television on the, the Chinese television news, you'd have like, you know, a sexy young woman reading the news. And on the Tibetan news, you'd have like a gray old man. And I went to um, one of the bookstores. Actually, I was looking for a um, copy of Harry Potter in Tibetan for a friend. <laughs> and we ended up actually buying Harry Potter in Chinese. That's a long story. But it was just like, there's. it seemed like the policy was like, okay, you want to learn Tibetan, you can learn Tibetan. But if you want to watch TV, if you want to watch a new movie, if you want to read an international bestseller, it's in Chinese. And so there's just, there's all sorts of ways that they, you know, discourage the study of Tibetan. I suppose you could argue that one form of uh, United Front work or pacification has been this massive economic development that we have seen across the Tibetan plateau. I mean, the Chinese state is arguing that this is improving living conditions for people in Tibet, for Tibetan people. Isn't, isn't there some uh, truth to that? So, yeah, I think uh, the development argument... Uh or the development route to justification of colonialism or occupation is something that the Chinese government has been proposing for a very long time. And uh, on the Tibetan side of the equation, the difference is really stark, actually. And it really kind of underscores how huge, how enormous the gap between the Tibetan worldview and the Chinese worldview is. And, uh, and I remember also reading Barbara's book, Eat the Buddha. Uh, there was a quote that I found particularly illuminating. Um, even though this sentiment runs very deep among people, once in a while, you know, somebody says something that jumps out. And one, this one person who was actually uh, one of the characters in the book is actually a very wealthy Tibetan, actually, very someone someone we would think of as successful, right, in today's world, uh, and 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 this guy apparently has everything. Then he says, "Except my freedom." The freedom component of any quality of life is always something with a number with which everything is multiplied, not added. You know, so if freedom, the freedom score is zero in your life, then it doesn't matter. You can be a billionaire. 
you are still zero at the end the qual in terms of your quality of life and that was a realization before 2008 i remember meeting some rare tibetans occasionally who would say these days over the last 10 years or something you know some of us have been actually doing a little bit better we are making more money we have uh, a disposable income we are able to buy better tvs or better vehicles or whatnot so there were that category of people in beginning to emerge at some point in some ranks but after 2008 that kind of people completely disappeared because the some of the wealthiest tibetans some of the most connected up in the high rungs you know privileged tibetans who were benefiting from the system the chinese government system in tibet they would be flying to beijing and at the airport they would have to go through a different kind of security they would have to go through you know extreme kind of humiliation through security and then when they end up in Shanghai or Beijing, they would not get a room in a hotel, no matter how much money they had. So uh, without the freedom component of uh, uh, what a person enjoys in their daily life, I think the economic development argument, I think it used to attract some Tibetans at some point in the past. But right now, after everything that's been done, it seems that that argument is really not uh, selling very well to any anybody. Baba, tell us what you saw on the ground when you were traveling around doing the reporting for your book. I mean, how much economic development was there and who seemed to be gaining the most benefit from it? Well, yes, that, that's, that's the right way to frame the question. I mean, there's a lot of economic development, um, but it, most of it seems to be for the benefit of um, Han Chinese who are moving into Tibetan areas. I mean, just for example, you know, I mentioned taking um, the plane. I've flown a couple of times through Lhasa and some other regional airports. And, you know, they love, the Chinese love building airports. But you see very, very few Tibetans on those flights. I haven't taken the train. Um, but it's clearly, you know, designed to bring in Han Chinese tourists and business people um, into Lhasa. Just the, the housing that they're building, I saw these like gorgeous new townhouses um, being built in what used to be called the Golag region of, of Tibet in um, Qinghai province. And, you know, it's like little balconies and little, you know, red roofs, doodads um, on the roofs, you know, very fancy. And those were clearly, you know, intended for Han Chinese, the, the again, the advertisements for them were in Chinese only. There's a whole new section of Noah south of the river um, with high-rise apartments, and those are mostly for um, security um, personnel and their families. Um, so, you know, it is, it it is you know, it reminds me a little bit of um, when I covered the West Bank in Gaza um, in an earlier life. You know, it's okay, they're developing, but developing for whom? You know, I, I would say that many of the Tibetans I met were pleased about their economic advances, although their general, you know, quality of life or standard of living is way, way below um, the Han Chinese in the same areas. You know, most people I met said their lifestyles had improved, their standard of living had improved, they had more 
appliances, whatnot, but it did come back to this this whole um, issue of freedom, and you know, not freedom in the way of Western democracy freedom, but just you know, freedom to you know drive around and not be stopped at checkpoints, freedom to display the portrait of their spiritual leader, you know, freedom to study their own language. And I think um, a lot of Tibetans, even like apolitical Tibetans who are not into political activism, don't really have a comfortable way to live. Um, They face a lot of labor discrimination. And if they're going to get a job, it's probably going to be in the civil service as a teacher or policeman, you know, working for the government. And that has involves all sorts of restrictions on practicing your religion and your culture. And it's like, you know, I've heard people say this so many times, like, I just, you know, I just want to live. I want a job. I want to raise my kids. And they don't, you know, kind of have a way to be neutral. They're, they're, always in these impossible predicaments. I think one of the things that people really care about, I would say, is to not be infantilized. And, you know, we don't even have to go into big concepts of political freedom or um, a democracy or even human rights. We can forget about those things uh, even on a daily basis. Uh, not having access to a passport. This passport example is really uh, I, I think it's really important because for the last um, more than six or seven years, since 2013, uh, sometime around that year, the Chinese government has been confiscating Tibetan people's passports. And only, not all Tibetans have passports to begin with, right? Only the more privileged and the more um, able Tibetans have passports to begin with, and those passports have been forfeited, confiscated, taken away for safe, the government says safekeeping, right? What that means is Tibetans are not able to travel uh, anywhere. The Chinese government trusts Chinese people enough to let them go to the West, let them go to the universities, to, you know, America or the Europe or wherever. They can read about uh, all, you know, all these books and about all these prob- uh, crazy ideas, right? They have no problem with that. They are confident about it. But the Chinese government does not trust the Tibetans with their passports because they might go to India. So in a way, the Chinese government is more afraid of letting Tibetans have an audience with the Dalai Lama in India than letting all the Chinese citizens of China proper go to the West and pick up ideas of democracy. They're not afraid of that, right? And I think that goes to show two things. One, Tibetans have been really treated like savages in the colonial sense of the term, the kind, the way in which Europeans used to see Africa and India and the way they treated people in those places. We haven't really left that world. We are still in that world when it comes to the way the Chinese government treats the Tibetan people. Uh, The relationship cannot be described with any other word than really uh, colonial. What's interesting is that colonial states need to have intermediaries. They need to have local people that are going to work on behalf of that state um, to make things operate. What struck me since about 2008 is that 
uh, and this sort of goes to what Dorje was uh, saying, is that um, the people that the party had brought up over the past 20, 30, maybe 40 years, who had been the most assimilated, who had been most integrated into the into the system, were suddenly no longer trusted. I had a friend who was a, a pretty high-ranking party member uh, Tibetan, and he was incredulous because after 2008, he couldn't travel. This is a guy who was, a, you know, not the top echelons, but he was a, you know, he had, he had had a very successful career within the state. And suddenly he's not allowed to leave home. He's not allowed to go to Beijing. He's not allowed to go to Tibet. And so if you're losing these people who were your colonial administrators, so to speak, um, then you're stuck in a situation where all you have left is coercion. You know, we often think of uh, Xi Jinping in the state of being a very strong state. And of course, it is in many ways. But it's also, I think, a very insecure one because uh, a security state wouldn't have to go to these lengths to do uh, to, to, to make their, their, their citizens dis- to discipline their citizens, so to speak. I do have one last question and I want all of you to answer it um, reasonably briefly. But we've seen in the last week these new religious restrictions that China is has released about religious clergy, and they stipulate the succession of living Buddhas should be carried out under China's regulations. A lot of people are interpreting this as directly related to who gets to pick the next Dalai Lama, and Beijing trying to control that. You know, the Dalai Lama is now 80, is about to turn 86 in July. What you know, are your predictions for what happens next and what w- will happen in Tibetan regions at, at when, when he dies? Are we heading to a kind of another kind of conflagration or is the sort of securitization, the militarization such that that's simply impossible? I mean, well, I remember what the, the Dalai Lama said about this when I interviewed him a few years back is that the Chinese Communist Party has no business getting involved in reincarnation. And if they're so interested in reincarnation, they could try to reincarnate Mao. Um, I thought that was a pretty funny line. But, you know, I think we're definitely approaching or a situation where there could be, you know, more than more than one Dalai Lama, a Tibetan named Dalai Lama and a Chinese government supported Dalai Lama. I mean, it would be like, you know, the, the papal schism in the I guess the 14th and 15th century when you had, I think, three three people simultaneously claiming to be Pope. Very messy. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to predict as much. I'll, I'll leave that to, to Tendor. Um, but I want to look back a little bit. And it's just remarkable that the Communist Party is replicating a process that was put into place by the Qing Empire, by, by Manchus for ruling over Tibetan Buddhists within their realms. And I think it really speaks once again to the difficult process, the inability of the Chinese state to make their claims uh, stick with people of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds who have their own aspirations and their own ideas about what their nation should look like and who should have a say in that. Um, so having to go back to these imperial practices to try to maintain control over uh, Tibetans just, I think, again, speaks to a, a it speaks to a failure of nation building over the past seven decades. I think one of the things that we have to remember, and it's actually very clear to anybody who looks carefully, is His Holiness the Dalai Lama has actually been the only and the biggest pacifying influence on the Tibetan community and the Tibetan freedom struggle. 
And this has been throughout the last 70 years, ever since uh, he assumed leadership in Tibet. Uh, every single time the Tibetan protests had kind of veered off from nonviolent protests into uh, episodes of rioting, whether it was mostly in, I think, certain episodes of rioting in Lhasa, every single time when it skidded that way a little bit, His Holiness has actually reined the movement right back in. He has immediately uh, stepped up and disciplined the movement, so to speak. So once he's not around anymore, the discipline of the Tibetan freedom struggle will definitely become a big question. And there is no guarantee whatsoever that the conflict of the Tibetan issue uh, will continue to remain this kind of uh, frozen conflict, uh, you know, a Cold War type of cold conflict or frozen conflict. Uh, we might actually see very well a, a conflagration of the conflict. Tendo, Benno and Barbara, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks. You've been listening to Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Tendor Doji, Barbara Demick, and Bruno Weiner. And a reminder to join us in celebrating our fifth anniversary by sharing your stories and posing your burning questions about China, which we'll do our best to find some answers for. Drop us a line on Facebook and on Twitter. We're also delighted to recommend a new podcast from the ANU's Development Policy Centre. Gordon Peake's Memorandum of Understanding takes you behind the bureaucratic curtain and lances through the buzzwords to tell stories of the people, policy and politics of the development industry. It's produced by Little Red Podcast's Julia Bergen and the debut episode, which takes you to Dili in East Timor, is out now. And a belated happy Year of the Ox to all of you, particularly our editor, Andy Hazel, our researchers, Julia Bergen and Xu Chong, Susie Wilkins, who made our music, and Seb Danter, who came up with our cartoons and gifts. Bye for now.